This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Before I get to my guest, who is the amazing writer, Rachel Howard, I want to share a little update on this podcast and thank you for listening. First, I'm so happy to say that this episode is the first one in my seventh year of hosting and producing First Draft. My sixth anniversary was last Monday, June 3rd, 2019, and I'm so grateful and humbled by all of you who have listened over the years. I started this show with an idea to talk to authors about their most recent published work, and it has grown, if I say so myself, into an incredible archive of interviews that highlight both the craft of writing and the themes the writers are exploring in their work. I've committed to conducting at least 40 interviews a year, but I've tended to hover around 45 to 48, meaning I basically read a book a week all year. Until two months ago, I was funded by Aspen Public Radio. That funding has ended. I'm very sorry to say, although I'm grateful for the years that I had it. I am committed to continuing this show. I love doing it, and I really hope that you love listening and find it valuable to your life, whether you're a writer or reader or just curious about the world and books. It's not an easy task to research potential guests book them on the show, read their work, prepare for the interview, edit the content, and get it on the air. It takes time, money, and dogged determination to keep up with this. I can't even tell you how many nights I've sat at my computer at 2 a.m. editing an interview or how many mornings I've set my alarm for 5 a.m. to read the chapter of a book before my day job or how many weekends I've said no to all things fun and social to keep first draft going. These are not complaints. It's a joy to do this. But to that end, it does take resources. It takes equipment, podcast hosting services, and so much time. I'm not deterred by the fact that my funding source has ended. I'm working on a long-term plan to keep First Draft alive, hopefully maybe with grants and advertising and other donations. But for now, I'm asking you, my listeners, that if this podcast has value to you, to please donate to keep First Draft going at www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. There are various member benefits, including cuts from interviews that I'll send once a month that didn't make it into the final shows, writing advice from my guests that I ask them on the show and save just for members, and even books and coming soon some first draft swag. I'm committed to continuing to do this show and to keep it free on this platform so you can listen. The benefit of donating is both the extra content as well as basic support so the show can go on and membership in this cool community of writers and readers. Just like in public radio, we can't do it without members and listeners, so please take a moment to pause the show or listen and donate after it's over. I'll remind you again at the end of the show. And thank you so much for listening. That's the best thing you can do is just to support this show, is to listen, and just tell one friend, have them tune in. You can always reach me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Your support means the world to me. 
So far, First Draft has aired over 240 author interviews, and I plan to continue. So please become a member and a patron today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters, and on with the show. My guest is Rachel Howard, who writes fiction, nonfiction, essays, memoir, and dance criticism. Her memoir is called The Lost Night, and her new novel is called The Risk of Us, which tells the story of a couple who begin fostering a troubled seven-year-old girl and are faced with the decision to move toward permanent adoption or not. The Risk of Us looks at the challenges this couple face as they navigate parenthood and how fostering impacts their individual identities and shared relationship. The novel is told in spare language, fraught with emotion, as the couple who is unnamed go through a year of lives with Marisa, their foster daughter. Howard herself adopted a daughter from the foster system in California, an experience which informed her novel. We began the discussion with Howard sharing her thoughts about the impetus of the risk of us. I was in the adoption and foster care world because we took in a girl when she was seven. And I do remember one day I saw a brochure like the one that's mentioned in the book in a lobby. And it said something about we need families that take risks. And it, that phrase just really struck me because I thought, who advertises for families that take risks? Like, in what other context is that a quality that you're looking for in potential parents? There was a moment, I think, when it clicked for me that adopting someone in this way, or, and also a child being adopted in this way, that it's a lot like a marriage. And that you hope that the feelings are unforced on both sides, but there's um, a tremendous pressure getting there. What made you decide that this needed to be fiction because you had experience with memoir before? Yeah, that was actually immediate, that decision, really part of the initial conception of the book that I felt like I had seen so much advocacy, and advocacy is crucial. So much advocacy is needed in foster care right now for um, lots of topical reasons I could get into with the number of children in foster care rising five years in a row. More are sure to enter now because of what's unfortunately continuing to happen at the border uh, with the separations from families. And I had, I had seen advocacy and I was in the world so I was seeing a lot of brochures and I was seeing a lot of um, parenting advice books and I felt like what fiction does is create this space that is removes all judgment it's just a space for being curious for not having the answers and for just looking really closely at hard questions and that's how I wanted to treat this subject. I wanted people to come to a subject, you know, when we're, we're dealing with foster care and the pressures of parenting and children who desperately need parents. There's so much on the line for everyone. And there's so much in our human nature that's an urge to judge. And the, the narrator of the novel is aware of this urge herself. 
an urge to say, well, it must not have worked out with the previous foster parents because they didn't try hard enough or they weren't committed enough. And she learns a hard lesson over the course of the book where she's pushed to the limit and suddenly she doesn't think of herself as so different from the previous foster parents who tried. So I just wanted to create a space where judgment was not the point and really difficult things could be just looked at. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There is an element of this novel where it does read like a memoir, and it's hard to exactly put my finger on it. It's, I mean, it's definitely intimate, but I've read intimate novels. I mean, part of it is you you use the second person a lot, saying you, referring to both the husband and the daughter. But I think there's something more and, and maybe that has to do with you started your notes in a journal, but I, I don't know. And I'm just wondering, you know, when I finished this and I turned it over, I had to see the word a novel again to remind me because I was swept away in it as if it was so real. Yeah, I mean, well, I was definitely aware of working with that ambiguity. Um, so the voice what you're pointing to that I think creates a lot of that quality was very important to me. That was sort of the second big moment in the conception of the novel was when I was driving down to San Francisco for a a party with other authors actually. And um, this woman speaking to her husband, the voice came to me, uh, actually came to me in those opening sentences. And I, I knew that if I could get it down right away, I would have the tone and that I could ride that voice through the whole book. Um, but that if I didn't get it down, I would lose the whole book. So I, I got to the party and ran inside. And even though there were already people there socializing and having wine and whatnot, I went into a closet and wrote for a couple of hours. Um, and in hindsight, the reason that voice works really well is, you know, it's something that poets use a lot. Um, seen this kind of address seen less frequently in fiction, but um, I had also been reading uh, Jenny Offel's Department of Speculation, which starts out with an address to a you, the, the narrator of the novel speaking to her husband. So that surely was in the back of my mind. Uh, puts the reader in this space of instead of being spoken to, you know, just eavesdropping on an intimate conversation. And so I think it has this odd effect of um, giving a little bit more room for the uh, the reader to not be pressured. They're not being asked to um, believe anything or have any certain reactions and also let them lean in a little closer because they're hearing a conversation that they're eavesdropping on. So let's talk a little bit about the book. We have this couple that in the beginning are childless. They are kind of looking for the kid that they want to take in And she sees an exhibit at her church and sees photos of these kids. And kind of, it was like kind of instinctual that she chose this child. Then they were kind of off to the races and they got this young girl, seven years old, Marisa. 
the couple in in their forties, and they've I don't know they've been married a handful of years and decided that they wanted to do this together. And um, the the first line is it starts with a face in a binder. Children available reads the cover. In the real California foster system, if you are uh, trying to raise a child in this way, uh, you work with a nonprofit agency and you can go into their office and look through these huge plastic binders of flyers of children who need homes and see their pictures and um, a little bit of information, pretty protected, but a little bit of information about their background and their interests. And then you inquire about meeting them. And yes, for the couple in the novel, um, this is one of the first flyers that they see and they see this girl, Marisa, and they note right away there's just something about her that once seems like it's just flying right off the page with her energy and her her spirit, and they note that they're highly interested in her, and that's the first child that they meet. It seems like it's so risky to say families who are willing to take risks, right? Because you... Like in some ways, you could be a family that likes to take risks where you're like, let's not have any money anymore. Let's sell everything and travel <laughs> the world. Or they could be families that do drugs. Like risk is so many ways. And you said in real life, you you saw this flyer and it was also in the book. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that and then the family you created. Uh, I wish I had the flyer still. I don't I don't have the real flyer that I saw, but that's exactly what struck me. It's like, what kinds of risks are we talking about taking? And when you go into making this kind of family, um, and also for the couple in the book, you know, you you they go to a lot of training. They go, I don't know if they go to a lot of training. They go to some trainings. And you get some leveling from the social workers that there will be challenges. But it's necessarily very abstract, right? It's hard to wrap your head around, well, the child is going to have trauma and trauma-induced reactions and, you know, there will be panic attacks and there will be tantrums and there's going to be a period of you all testing each other, you know, and you're, you're going to have to make it through that period. But that's so... It's so abstract <laughs> till the person's really right there in front of you. And that's what it's like for the couple in the book. You don't usually end up in the foster care system because you had a happy home life. And with their child, she was separated from her sister. Um, there was abuse for her. There was some of sexual abuse. Her mom was in jail. So you're getting this child that is so traumatized and it's such a balance between setting boundaries and giving them love. And you see the parents really struggling with that. And I'm wondering if you could talk about writing those scenes because you're, you're trying to sort of mitigate the pain and show the beauty. And it's a balance just like it probably is in real life. I would say it was a dialectical process for me writing this book. So, you know, I really believe that you know things by what they are not. So, you know, truth in the face of untruth. And um, so for me in this book, the first full draft was writing against sentimentality and being in touch with this state 
of not knowing that these three people do not know whether they're going to make it as a family. And to keep myself in that state as I wrote scene to scene. And if I was just in that state of mind with each of them, then the details of the scenes would bring the reader also into that state. As I wrote the first draft, I did not know which way the turn would go for these three people. I did not know if they were going to make it or not when we got to that point. But in the first draft, I was selecting the things that cut against the sentimentality. And then in the second draft, I had to build in all of the things where um, the wife and the husband and the daughter are connecting with each other and the really moving moments and the joyful moments to let a little bit more of that in. One of the things that really struck me was the big team of support that they had that was very, it was very optimistic and hopeful, I think, that the state, and this took place in California, was so supportive knowing like to take on a foster kid that may have had abuse and issues in her past. We know that you can't do it alone. So here are all the things we want to offer you. And I'm wondering if you could talk about all the characters that were kind of there helping the parents along and maybe that in the book and then that in your life. Yeah, that was a central impetus for the book because I mean, really, a big part of the reason this book was burning for me, and I felt right away like, ah, I can make this a novel, this can work as a novel, was um, the intensity of all of this surveillance in this intimate situation. And knowing that it was important that all this surveillance was there, shouldn't be gotten rid of. It's, um, you know, it's the best hope to have all of these people watching and putting in their advice and... Um, looking out for the child, you know, even if your family has gone through an FBI background check and be interviewed, like they, they need to keep an eye on this. Um, but then at the same time, it's, uh, intensely uncomfortable for particularly the, the mother in this story, the husband can kind of shake it off more. The social agencies, of course, want them to finalize. They want this to be the child's final home. At the same time, that's not guaranteed. This is ultimately going to go to the court with all of these people reporting on it. So there's a a social worker who does their home study and interviews the couple, and um, she's called the gray-crowned social worker in the book. And um, there's another social worker from the far-off county that the girl moves from, and he's called surfer dude. <laughs> and he's much more laid back and the wife and the husband kind of like him and are a little bit more comfortable with him, but he's not the one who's uh, the main player. It's um, the gray crowned social worker who um, uh, is a little more skeptical of them, I think, because she's just on overdrive trying to do her job well. And she's the one who's closer and dropping on the, in on them all more often. Um, and then there, as a therapist, which they're first assigned from County Behavioral Health, um, that at first the adoptive mother is hoping that this woman's a great fit. <laughs> and that becomes very uncomfortable. And then 
it's difficult for her to take charge of being Marisa's mom and to say, you know, I, I know what this little girl needs. She's living with me and I feel I know her the best. You, you all just drop in on her once a month or once a week and say, we're going to change therapists. That's kind of a central thing that, um, that the narrator and the husband, Sebastian, have to get over here to, to really be Marisa's parents. What about your experience? Oh, my experience was very much like that. <laughs> uh, probably that's the most intensely um, corresponding to reality element of the novel. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, you must feel in some ways you're in a fishbowl because it, it is a double-sided interview in some ways. I mean, it's that you have to decide if you want this life, but then people have to decide if you're worthy of this life. Um, and you must feel so tender and delicate, like if you make one mistake, that must feel like there's so much at risk. Yeah. And uh, also because relationships are being managed in lots of different directions. So you can get the parents get caught in a war between different factions at one point. <laughs> and they're trying to just keep all of the factions happy that. Uh, another worker, not even the therapist, but then there's this, this adjunct to the therapist called the family support specialist. And she's gone and done a school observation and, um, learned that one day when Marisa ran off from the classroom, the first grade teacher, uh, went off after her and picked her up and carried her back. And that sends up for her a red flag. Oh, no, no, teachers are never supposed to touch the child. He shouldn't have picked her up and carried her back. And and the, the couple, the narrator and Sebastian, are, are you know, the, the school has been their saving grace and their greatest support in this process. And so they are terrified about pissing off the school. And, uh, you know, now being pressured by the therapist, the family support specialist and the social worker that they need to call the superintendent's office and make a big stink out of this. And then meanwhile, you have surfer dude from the far off County and he's stepping in and going, Oh no, no, no. They've completely overstepped their bounds. Uh, they should never have told you that you have to call in the superintendent's office and don't worry. I'm the one who makes the decisions about where Marisa will live which is not exactly comforting because then you realize, well, okay, well, they may not have all this. He's saying they don't have all this power, but he's the one who has all this power. Well, what happens if we do something to his displeasure? So yeah, they are all caught in quite a web together. And that's why I thought there's a book in this because even though it's intimately about these three people trying to make it together, trying to come to a place where they're bonded and they do unconditionally love each other, it's also about a tough problem in society. And this is all our societal problem that, you know, we need to set up these systems to help kids as well as we can. <laughs> and um, that's difficult to do, um, which also uh, points to, I mean, this is what I love about fiction, right? That it can hold really hard truths that might seem contradictory, might seem like you need to choose between these truths, but you don't, they coexist. And, and here that's, you know, okay, we need families that will take in children who are in foster care and be able to succeed. We need to support those families. Um, 
but foster care should be a last resort and we should do everything we can to just not have these kids in the system to begin with because look how difficult it is to construct an administrative system of bureaucracy that can you know respond to individual humans so i thought those are questions for a novel <laughs> yeah and so basically the way that it it works is you know you get to decide when you want to finalize it i mean on some level the parents could say okay we're ready we want to go for it or they could say, hey, we want to wait. But it seemed like there was like a delicate dance because they don't want to, they couldn't wait too long. But during that period before they were ready to sort of name a date, they had some real doubts that had to do with Marisa's emotional issues that had to do with how she was reacting to them, that had to do with if they felt like they were up to the task of raising a child that, that was this complicated and to me, that was kind of the the crux or the sort of the crescendo of of all of this, like where it was all moving to was do they do this or not? I mean, I don't think I'll ever have an experience writing a book like this again. And I have another novel that I worked on for seven years before I started on this one. But um, yeah, when this one came to me, I I knew how to make it work because I knew this child is going to come live with them. And then, okay, there's six months mandatory limbo in, within the system. That's how the system is set up. You, there ha, you have to, the child has to be in a placement for six months. After that, theoretically, it's open to finalizing the adoption. If the courts sign off, if everything goes well bureaucratically, and if the family is, is ready. Um, and so I thought, okay, she's going to come live with this family. And there's serious time pressure here. They're either going to make it or they're not. And that's what's going to contain the the book and and drive the tension of it. Um, and right, yeah, so after they make it through that mandatory six months, it's uh, what they thought would have been an easy kind of counting down on the clock is much more complicated. And I will say from my experience in the system in real life and knowing lots of other families, um, that unfortunately, you know, you'd think, okay, well, you know, you, the, whatever family takes in a child is going to, to make the ultimate commitment as quickly as possible. Sadly, that does not always happen. Um, there are children who go on in limbo with families who aren't sure if they want to commit for a long time. And I, I personally know a children who have been with a family for um, two and a half years. And all of a sudden, for subtle reasons, they say, no, they're not going to make the commitment. And the child moves on to a new home. And what happens is heartbreaking. Um, the, the bureaucratic reality of the system is that um, a family that has a foster child, even if they've entered the system saying they want to offer permanency and this is their goal, can at any time call a seven-day notice. And so with seven days, that child moves on to a new home. I think the, the novel also looks at the question of unconditional love. And w most parents would say it's unconditional love. But 
every once in a while there is conditional love. And <laughs> it feels maybe easier when you're taking on someone and you're assessing if they fit in your family to have conditional love, right? You, you know, these people are taking her in and if she if she isn't too hard or too violent, then they can take her in. So I personally am very influenced by a preacher at the Episcopal Cathedral where I converted. Um, I grew up with no religion and became very religious, well, although it was a gradual kind of process, but in my 20s. And uh, the preacher there, Alan Jones, talked a lot about, you know, what if love isn't about sentimentality? What if love is a policy? It's not the feelings, it's a policy. If you have the feelings, great, but, <laughs> uh, but always, always act with love as the policy. And then that gets into a more interesting idea of love than I think that we're used to in this culture, which is a discussion that I would like to open up and be delighted if the book did open up. Um, because we get into this tribalism of kind of love for the people nearest to us and for children, right, that we think needs to be this intense attachment. And that's our kind of go-to idea of love. Um, but, you know, what if what if love is just a desire for the best interest of, of everyone, you know, whether or not you have that intense attachment to them? Um, and that makes for more more complicated decisions. It's a real it's a spiritual challenge. <laughs> Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, so it's called Voyage in the Dark by Jean Reese. And the narrator of the book, the main character, Anna, she's 19, um, and she's a chorus girl in England. And she's had to move there from the Caribbean. And um, her father has died, and she's just got a stepmother somewhere else in England who really doesn't want anything to do with her. And uh, she's just been kind of throwing herself at men. Um, and she has this lover who picked her up in one of the towns where she was touring as a chorus uh, girl, and his name is Walter. And the problem is she's, um, at first she was very wary, but now she really is starting to feel very tenderly towards him, although she doesn't quite want to admit that to herself. So um, this is, she's going on a visit to him. And she can feel him already starting to pull away. The taxi stopped and I got down and paid the man and went into the hotel. He was waiting for me. I smiled and said, hello. He had been looking very solemn, but when I smiled like that, he seemed relieved. We went and sat in a corner. I said, I'll have coffee. I imagined myself saying very calmly, the thing is that you don't understand. You think I want more than I do. I only want to see you sometimes, but if I never see you again, I'll die. I'm dying now, really, and I'm too young to die. The candles crying waxed tears and the smell of Stephanotis, and I had to go to the funeral in a white dress and white gloves and a wreath round my head, and the wreath in my hands made my gloves wet. They said so young to die. The people there were like upholstered ghosts. I said, that letter I had from Vincent, I knew he was writing, he said, twisting his head a bit. You asked him to write? Yes, I asked him to write. When he talked, his eyes went away from mine, and then he forced himself to look straight at me, and he began to explain, 
And I knew that he felt very strange with me and that he hated me. And it was funny sitting there and talking like that, knowing he hated me. Uh, One thing I really love about this passage is that that bit in the middle about the candles crying, wax tears, her her memory floating in of um, her father's funeral from her time in the Caribbean. And um, she she intercuts those so boldly. It's It's a really risky technique to to take on in a novel. Um, And in this line, the people there were like upholstered ghosts. The the rhythm of it, um, I know it's strange, like a random, but you know how when you're a younger writer and you read a work that really gets to you and then there's there's just one line like that that may have some really random content, but the music of it stays with you. And, And it's the music that ends up being influential on your own style. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was something tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? All right. So this is a passage that I wrote and rewrote a lot (laughs) up to the 11th hour. (laughs) The narrator is speaking to the little girl. And the context here is that the narrator's husband, Sebastian, who's trying to become Marisa's father, has an atrial septal heart defect. Um, so his physical health is, is delicate. Um, all right. Here's something I can't say to you, little one, because I'm not sure you'd understand. It's easy to take the wrong way. Reason number one, I married daddy. I knew he was going to die. I mean, viscerally understood this, which meant he was a real person not an abstraction in my imagination like all the other men, men I feared would either leave like my fantasy father or stray and become flawed, less than perfect for me in some impossible-to-predict way. I can't explain how this hit me, how, for the first time, I got it. This weird, kind man wouldn't be here forever. He was a real person, simultaneously precious and imperfect, like me which meant my own selfish fears were finally moot. Tell me why you chose that. This was a passage that people questioned me on consistently from the first draft of this novel, uh, because it's a, a surprising thing for the narrator to say, I married him because I knew he was going to die, and uh, obviously begs for some explanation. And the explanation is really complex for this uh, this narrator, this woman. Um, she's had a lot of lovers in between her first husband that it didn't work out with and Sebastian, who she calls daddy. And um, there was a panic for her in committing to someone that she hasn't understood. And I had to drill down and try to understand it myself to make this passage work. In earlier drafts, I had it being about her fear that a man who seemed really nice and felt like she could have a relationship with, that he would become a thug, that that if she risked giving herself, he would actually be um, a bad person. And then I realized, like, no, that that was an issue for her sometimes, but that's not the that's not the core of her the panic that she would have in committing to someone here. 
And then I finally got down to like, okay, well, what it is actually is that when you're holding yourself in a little bit of reserve from committing to someone, then that person can be more of the fantasy. And you're not uh, really up against the, all the, um, the flaws that are going to come in. So then that helped crack it open. But then I got to a draft where I had, he was a real person simultaneously precious and ordinary was what it said. And that's what I sent off in a, one of the final passes. It was supposed to be the final pass with the copy editor who was incredible, by the way. I cannot believe how closely I got to collaborate with the copy editor at Houghton Mifflin, whose name was Larry. Um, so we sent it off with, he was a real person simultaneously precious and ordinary. And then I thought on that and it just hit me at two in the morning. It's not about someone being ordinary. It's, it's just imperfect and that we're all imperfect. Um, and so it may seem like a tiny thing, but it was a, it was a huge thing for me because to me, like to reject somebody because they're ordinary is like, I don't know, it's really, it's not in, not a, <laughs> not, not, wouldn't be the most flattering characteristic of this narrator all that you know she has plenty of unflattering characteristics but I realized that that wasn't even true for her it was just that we're all imperfect <laughs> where do you write um I have uh an office I I used to write on our back porch um but now I've started a, a small writing studio here in my in my town where I teach writing classes and um so I, I found a place that had a a conference center that you got to use for free if you just rented one of the, the smaller offices within the building. So I go to uh, downtown Grass Valley and it's an, I think, 1850s building that's been subdivided into um, uh, therapist rooms and yoga studios. And next to me is a massage therapist. And, um, and my little room has a nice window and the Floors are really old and really beat up. I wonder what kind of factory was there in the 1850s. It's supposed to um, have internet in the building, but it, the internet never works. And the landlady keeps telling me that I should let her know when it's out. But I stopped because I realized it was so useful to have a place where I couldn't count on the internet. So I go there because there's no internet and I don't want the landlady to know. <laughs> What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I'm never trying to get away from writing. I'm always trying to get to writing. So I can't, I can't imagine trying to get away from it. I'm just, you know, always having to block out and strategize my days to make the time no matter what. It's always such a fight and I can't live without it. And if I go more than three days with working on a project, um, I mean, not doing like just not journalism or, you know, writing emails, but doing some kind of writing that's really personal to me, then I start to go kind of crazy. So I'm, I'm never trying to get away. <laughs> Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a writer's group here in town of two other writers and we meet every other week, which is one person up at a time. So every six weeks, I get to have something read by them. And then uh, the other thing I did, I realized like, 
four years ago that I was really stuck in my writing and um, just needed complete outside perspective. And someone had told me about the, you know, the service Fiverr where you hire people to do things for you. And I just went on there and like looked through editors and tried out five different Fiverr editors and found this guy in England. I won't dare share his name because if other people start booking him, I don't know what I'll do. <laughs> when I have something really wild and new, I send it to him and pay his Fiverr fees to get his feedback on it. How have you dealt with rejection? That's a really hard question because it's so different in each. I mean, there's so much rejection, but it's so different how it hits you depending on the context. So I'd say mostly I just take it like anyone else. You know, I've got my uh, submittable dashboard with, uh, God, I don't even want to know the real number of pieces on there that are marked declined. And then there's like three that are marked accepted. So rejections are coming into me via the little submittable emails every week and uh yeah mostly you know just self-talk about you know it's 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 a subjective experience of people reading your work and this is what it's like for all writers out there you can't 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 think it's just you this is we're all we're all going through this and what is your favorite word my favorite word is uh deliquescent which I never use in my writing, um, never found the opportunity, but I also write dance criticism and um, longtime critic who mentored me, whose work I love, I saw him use it in a dance review. He was describing a dancer's plie and he described it as deliquescent, which I had to look up and it means that something is given to turning to liquid. Um, I think of that all the time and I... It never quite feels natural in my writing, but I love to hold that word in my brain. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Rachel Howard, author of The Risk of Us. Our interview was recorded at Aspen Public Radio. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. Thanks so much for tuning in. As a reminder, please consider supporting First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I'm committed to continuing the show and your support will help me do that. Thanks again for listening and supporting First Draft. Please tell a friend, a reader, a writer to tune in. I'm Mitzi Rapkin.